Section 11 of The Good Soldier, A Tale of Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford. Read by Martina Hutchins, 5th of November. 2009 in berkeley california part three chapter two immediately after florence's death lenora began to put the leash upon nancy rufford and edward she had guessed what had happened under the trees near the casino they stayed at nauheim some weeks after i went and lenora has told me that that was the most deadly time of her existence it seemed like a long silent duel with invisible weapons so she said and it was rendered all the more difficult by the girl's entire innocence. For Nancy was always trying to go off alone with Edward, as she had been doing all her life whenever she was home for holidays. She just wanted him to say nice things to her again. You see, the position was extremely complicated. It was as complicated as it well could be along delicate lines. There was the complication caused by the fact that Edward and Lenora never spoke to each other except when other people were present. Then, as I have said, their demeanors were quite perfect. There was the complication caused by the girl's entire innocence. There was the further complication that both Edward and Lenora really regarded the girl as their daughter. Or it might be more precise to say they regarded her as being Lenora's daughter. And Nancy was a queer girl. It is very difficult to describe her to you. She was tall and strikingly thin. She had a tortured mouth, agonized eyes, and a quite extraordinary sense of fun. You might put it that at times she was exceedingly grotesque, and at times extraordinarily beautiful. Why, she had the heaviest head of black hair that I have ever come across. I used to wonder how she could bear the weight of it. She was just over twenty-one, and at times she seemed as old as the hills, at times not much more than sixteen. At one moment she would be talking of the lives of the saints, and at the next she would be tumbling all over the lawn with the St. Bernard puppy. She could ride to hounds like a menad, and she could sit for hours perfectly still, steeping handkerchief after handkerchief in vinegar when Lenora had one of her headaches. She was, in short, a miracle of patience who could be almost miraculously impatient. It was, no doubt, the convent training that affected that. I remember that one of her letters to me, when she was about sixteen, ran something like, On Corpus Christi! or it may have been some other saint's day. I cannot keep these things in my head. Our school played Roehampton at hockey, and seeing that our side was losing, being three goals to one against us at half-time, we retired into the chapel and prayed for victory. We won by five goals to three. And I remember that she seemed to describe afterwards a sort of saturnalia. Apparently, when the victorious fifteen or eleven came into the refectory for supper, the whole school jumped upon the tables and cheered and broke the chairs on the floor and smashed the crockery, for a given time until the Reverend Mother rang a handbell. That is, of course, the Catholic tradition, such an alia that can end in a moment like the crack of a whip. I don't, of course, like the tradition, but I am bound to say that it gave Nancy, or at any rate Nancy had, a sense of rectitude that I have never seen surpassed. It was a thing like a knife that looked out of her eyes, and that spoke with her voice just now and then. It positively frightened me. 
I suppose that I was almost afraid to be in a world where there could be so fine a standard. I remember when she was about fifteen or sixteen, going back to the convent, I once gave her a couple of English sovereigns as a tip. She thanked me in a particularly heartfelt way, saying it would come in extremely handy. I asked her why, and she explained. There was a rule at the school that pupils were not to speak when they walked through the garden from the chapel to the refectory, and, since this rule appeared to be idiotic and arbitrary, she broke it on purpose day after day. In the evening the children were all asked if they had committed any faults during the day, and every evening Nancy confessed that she had broken this particular rule. It cost her sixpence a time, that being the fine attached to the offense. Just for the information, I asked her why she always confessed. And she answered in these exact words. Oh, well, the girls of the Holy Child have always been noted for their truthfulness. It's a beastly bore, but I've got to do it. I dare say that the miserable nature of her childhood, coming before the mixture of Saturnalia and discipline that was her convent life, added something to her queerness. Her father was a violent madman of a fellow, a major of one of what I believe are called the Highland Regiment. He didn't drink, but he had an ungovernable temper. And the first thing that Nancy could remember was seeing her father strike her mother with his clenched fist so that her mother fell over sideways from the breakfast table and lay motionless. The mother was no doubt an irritating woman, and the private of that regiment appeared to have been irritating too, so the house was a place of outcries and perpetual disturbances. Mrs. Rufford was Lenora's dearest friend, and Lenora could be cutting enough at times, but I fancy she was as nothing to Mrs. Rufford. The major would come in to lunch, harassed and already spitting out oaths after an unsatisfactory morning's drilling of his stubborn men beneath a hot sun. And then Mrs. Rufford would make some cutting remark, and pandemonium would break loose. Once, when she had been about twelve, Nancy had tried to intervene between the pair of them. Her father had struck her full upon the forehead, a blow so terrible that she had lain unconscious for three days. Nevertheless, Nancy seemed to prefer her father to her mother. She remembered rough kindnesses from him. Once or twice, when she had been quite small, he addressed her in a clumsy, impatient, but very tender way. It was nearly always impossible to get a servant to stay in the family, and for days at a time, apparently, Mrs. Rufford would be incapable. I fancy she drank. At any rate, she had so cutting a tongue that even Nancy was afraid of her. So she made fun of any tenderness, so she sneered at all emotional displays. Nancy must have been a very emotional child. Then, one day, quite suddenly, on her return from a ride at Fort William, Nancy had been sent with her governess, who had a white face, right down south to that convent school. She had been expecting to get there in two months' time. Her mother disappeared from her life at that time. A fortnight later, Lenora came to the convent and told her that her mother was dead. Perhaps she was. At any rate, I never heard until the very end what became of Mrs. Rufford. Lenora never spoke of her. And then Major Rufford went to India, from which he returned very seldom and only for very short visits. And Nancy lived herself gradually into the life at Branshaw Tellera. I think that, from that time onwards, she led a very happy life, till the end. There were dogs and horses and old servants in the forest, and there were Edward and Lenora who loved her. I had known her all the time, 
I mean, that she always came to the Ashburns at Nauheim for the last fortnight of their stay, and I watched her gradually growing. She was very cheerful with me. She always even kissed me, night and morning, until she was about eighteen. And she would skip about and fetch me things and laugh at my tales of life in Philadelphia. But beneath her gaiety, I fancied that there lurked some terrors. I remember one day when she was just eighteen, during one of her father's rare visits to Europe, we were sitting in the gardens near the iron-stained fountain. Lenora had one of her headaches, and we were waiting for Florence and Edward to come from their baths. You have no idea how beautiful Nancy looked that morning. We were talking about the desirability of taking tickets and lotteries, of the moral side of it, I mean. She was all in white, and so tall and fragile. And she had only just put her hair up, so the carriage of her neck had that charming touch of youth and of unfamiliarity. Over her throat there played the reflection from a little pool of water left by a thunderstorm of the night before, and all the rest of her features were in the diffused and luminous shade of her white parasol. Her dark hair just showed beneath her broad white hat of pierced chip straw. Her throat was very long and leaned forward, and her eyebrows, arching a little as she laughed at some old-fashionedness in my phraseology, had abandoned their tense line, and there was a little color in her cheeks and light in her deep blue eyes. And to think that that vivid white thing, that saintly and swan-like being, to think that why, she was like the sail of a ship, so white and so definite in her movements. And to think that she will never, why, she will never do anything again. I can't believe it. Anyhow, we were chattering away about the morality of lotteries. And then, suddenly, there came from the arcades behind us the overtone of her father's unmistakable voice. It was as if a modified foghorn had boomed with a reed inside it. I looked round to catch sight of him. A tall, fair, stiffly upright man of fifty, who was walking away with an Indian baron who had had much to do with the Belgian Congo. They must have been talking about the proper treatment of natives, for I heard him say, Oh, hang humanity! When I looked again at Nancy, her eyes were closed and her face was more pallid than her dress which had at least some pinkish reflections from the gravel. It was dreadful to see her with her eyes closed like that. Oh, she exclaimed, and her hand that had appeared to be groping settled for a moment on my arm. Never speak of it. Promise never to tell my father of it. It brings back those dreadful dreams. When she opened her eyes, she looked straight into mine. The blessed saints, she said. You would think they would spare you such things. I don't believe all the sinning in the world can make one serve them. They say the poor thing was always allowed a light at night, even in her bedroom, and yet no young girl could more archly and lovingly have played with an adored father. She was always holding him by both coat lapels, cross-questioning him as to how he spent his time, kissing the top of his head. Ah, she was well-bred, if ever anyone was. The poor, wretched man cringed before her, but she could not have done more to put him at ease. Perhaps she had had lessons in it at her convent. It was only that peculiar note of his voice, used when he was overbearing or dogmatic, that could unman her. And that was only visible when it came unexpectedly. That was because the bad dreams that the blessed saints allowed her to have for his sins 
always seemed to her to herald themselves by the booming sound of her father's voice. It was that sound that had always preceded this entrance for the terrible lunches of her childhood. I have reported earlier in this chapter that Lenora said, during that remainder of her stay at Nauheim, after I had left, it had seemed to her that she was fighting a long duel with unseen weapons against silent adversaries. Nancy, as I have also said, was always trying to go off with Edward alone. That had been her habit for years, and Lenora found it to be her duty to stop that. It was very difficult. Nancy was used to having her own way, and for years she had been used to going off with Edward, ratting, rabbiting, catching salmon down at Fordingbridge, district visiting of the sort that Edward indulged in or calling on tenants. And at Nauheim, she and Edward had always gone up to the casino alone in the evenings. At any rate, whenever Florence did not call for his attendance, it shows the obviously innocent nature of the regard of those two that even Florence had never had any idea of jealousy. Lenora had cultivated the habit of going to bed at ten o'clock. I don't know how she managed it, but for all the time they were at Nauheim, she contrived never to let those two be alone together, except in broad daylight in very crowded places. If a Protestant had done that, it would no doubt have awakened a self-consciousness in the girl. With the Catholics, who have always reservations and queer spots of secrecy, can manage these things better, and I dare say that two things made this easier, the death of Florence and the fact that Edward was obviously sickening. He appeared, indeed, to be very ill. His shoulders began to be bowed. There are pockets under his eyes. He had extraordinary moments of inattention, and Lenora describes herself as watching him as a fierce cat watches an unconscious pigeon in a roadway. In that silent watching again, I think she was a Catholic, of a people that think thoughts alien to ours and keep them to themselves. And the thoughts passed through her mind, some of them even got through to Edward with never a word spoken. At first she thought that it might be remorse or grief for the death of Florence that was oppressing him. But she watched and watched and uttered apparently random sentences about Florence before the girl, and she perceived that he had no grief and no remorse. He had not any idea that Florence could have committed suicide without writing at least a tirade to him. The absence of that made him certain that it had been heart disease, for Florence had never undeceived him on that point. She thought it made her seem more romantic. No, Edward had no remorse. He was able to say to himself that he had treated Florence with gallant attentiveness of the kind that she desired until two hours before her death. Lenora gathered that from the look in his eyes and from the way he straightened his shoulders over her as she lay in her coffin. From that and a thousand other little things. She would speak suddenly about Florence to the girl, and he would not start in the least. He would not even pay attention, but would sit with bloodshot eyes gazing at the tablecloth. He drank a good deal at that time, a steady soaking of drink every evening till long after they had gone to bed. For Lenora made the girl go to bed at ten, unreasonable though that seemed to Nancy. She would understand that, whilst they were in a sort of half-mourning for Florence, she ought not to be seen at public places like the casino. But she could not see why she should not accompany her uncle upon his evening strolls to the park. I don't know what Lenora put up as an excuse. Something, I fancy, in the nature of a nightly horizon that she made the girl and herself perform for the soul of Florence. And then, one evening... About a fortnight later, when the girl, growing restive at even devotional exercises, 
clamored once more to be allowed to go for a walk with Edward, and when Lenora was really at her wit's end, Edward gave himself into her hands. He was just standing up from dinner and had his face averted. But he turned his heavy head and his bloodshot eyes upon his wife and looked full at her. Dr. von Humptman, he said, has ordered me to go to bed immediately after dinner. My heart's much worse. He continued to look at Lenora for a long minute with a sort of heavy contempt, and Lenora understood that, with his speech, he was giving her the excuse she needed for separating him from the girl, and with his eyes he reproached her for thinking that he would try to corrupt Nancy. He went silently to his room and sat there for a long time, until the girl was well in bed, reading in the Anglican prayer book. And about half-past ten she heard his footsteps pass her door, going outwards. Two and a half hours later they came back, stumbling heavily. She remained reflecting upon this position until the last night of their stay at Nauheim. Then she suddenly acted. For, just in the same way, suddenly after dinner she looked at him and said, Teddy, don't you think you could take a night off from your doctor's orders and go with Nancy to the casino? The poor child has had her visit so spoiled. He looked at her in turn for a long, balancing minute. Why, yes, he said at last. Nancy jumped out of her chair and kissed him. Those two words, Lenora said, gave her the greatest relief of any two syllables she had ever heard in her life, for she realized that Edward was breaking up, not under the desire of possession, but from the dogged determination to hold his hand. She could relax some of her vigilance. Nevertheless, she sat in the darkness behind her half-closed jalousies, looking over the street and the night and the trees until, very late, she could hear Nancy's clear voice coming closer and saying, you did look an old guy with that false nose. There had been some sort of celebration of a local holiday up in the Cursal, and Edward replied with this sort of sulky good nature. As for you, you looked like old mother's side acre. The girl came swinging along, a silhouette behind a gas lamp. Edward and others slouched at her side. They were talking just as they had talked any time since the girl had been seventeen, with the same tones, the same jokes about an old beggar woman who always amused them at Brenshaw. The girl, a little later, opened Lenora's door whilst she was still kissing Edward on the forehead, as she had done every night. "'We've had a most glorious time,' she said. "'He's ever so much better. He raced me for twenty yards home. Why are you all in the dark?' Lenora could hear Edward going about in his room, but, owing to the girl's chatter, she could not tell whether he went out again or not. And then, very much later, because she thought if he were drinking again, something must be done to stop it, she opened for the first time, and very softly, the never-opened door between their rooms. She wanted to see if he had gone out again. Edward was kneeling beside his bed with his head hidden in the counterpane. His arms, outstretched, held out before him a little image of the Blessed Virgin, a tawdry, scarlet, and Prussian blue affair that the girl had given him on her first return from the convent. His shoulders heaved convulsively three times, and heavy sobs came from him before she could close the door. He was not a Catholic, but that was the way it took him. Lenora slept for the first time that night, with the sleep from which she never once started. End of Part 3, Chapter 2